2: When Matthew McGill died in 2015, he'd been so terrible to people for so long, there was almost nobody left he could push away. In fact, the only reason we know anything about his final days is because of two people he'd upset decades earlier, Cliff and Elaine Robertson. In the end, I promised him, I said, we're not going to abandon you. We're going to stay with you, whether you live or die. And we did. Remember, the Robertsons had tried and failed to buy some sod from Matthew back in the 80s. But as Matthew got older and sick and poor, they helped him, even encouraged him to try and make amends. I was trying to get him to write to his daughters while he could still see and while he could still write. Uh, He wanted to see his daughters and tell them they were sorry, but he wasn't willing to write the first letter when he was able.
3: I spent that last day with him.
2: Elaine was at the hospital with Matthew as he was dying, when he was withered and tired and all but gone. It was just her and a nurse sitting at his bedside.
3: I was rubbing his hands when he passed away. It was a time of reflection for me, and, you know, we need to be careful about how we treat people. We never... I opened it. I always wondered if they could put just concrete dust in here, but it just sounded gritty, so.
2: Before I leave the Robertsons, Elaine pulls out a cardboard box. It's about the size of a shoe box. Inside, there's a sealed plastic bag filled with dust. She hands it to me It weighs probably four or five pounds.
0: wow.
2: Golden Isles Cremation Center 1250. That's him.
3: This is the first time we've opened this box. It just sounded like little rocks moving, and that's kind of what it feels like, it's little pebbles. And I guess that's bone that didn't... I don't know. And we're not cremation people. We think you should be buried. (laughs) It's just foreign to me, but...
2: Yes, this is strange, I imagine. Yeah,
3: you see this and you wonder, what was this? I've never been this close to someone's ashes.
2: This is also my first time ever seeing cremated ashes let alone holding them, and I have a strange feeling. I understand how profound this moment is supposed to be, holding literally all that's left of this man I've been thinking about for years. But in reality, the whole thing feels completely mundane. It's almost devoid of any feeling. There is no ceremony to it. I do not feel a shudder crawl up my arm. I may as well be holding a bag of sand. When I think about Matthew these days, This is the image I come back to more than anything else. More than the sailboats and the modeling shots and the family photos, it's the unwanted bag of ashes. His entire wild life, Matthew managed to pull people towards him with his looks and his charm, and then in any number of ways, he'd blow it up. What good were the stories if in the end there was nobody left to share them with? I think it was this image and this thought that ultimately left me wanting to fix things with my own family, to get them all together in a room and set things right. I'm Eric Menel, and from Pineapple Street Studios, this is Stay Away from Matthew McGill, Part Seven, Return. down a little bit and like a little under your mouth. Now talk.
4: Now talk. About what? Whatever you'd like. Whenever I'd like.
2: After talking with all the members of my family individually, I felt there was one more conversation we should have. And that was with everyone at the same time.
5: What's your favorite alcohol?
4: Favorite alcohol, Malibu, because it's the easiest to, no, I changed my mind. Crown vanilla, that stuff is delicious.
2: We hadn't all been together like this, just the five of us, in probably a decade. My mom and dad didn't talk much anymore. My mom and brother didn't talk much anymore. My sister told me she felt caught in the middle of all of it. Danny, can you talk now?
5: Yeah, I sure can. I disagree. Crown vanilla is not as good as Malibu. Malibu is a lot better. Specifically, pineapple Malibu. You guys are making us sound like a family of
2: alcoholics. A friend back home lent me her house for the week. Thank you, Caitlin. I set up five chairs in a circle in the bedroom, flipped the bed on its side, and pushed it against the wall. My brother and sister sat across from me, my dad was on my left, my mom on my right. I had spent weeks mentally planning for this conversation. I'd hoped we could talk about where we each felt things had gone wrong and how we should interact going forward. What it even meant for us to be a family now. And then, right before the conversation, my dad tells me something I did not know. Today would have been my parents' 31st wedding anniversary. I have always been bad with dates, and anyway, it's not something we ever celebrated growing up. So I think he believes me when I say, I am sorry. I truly had no idea. But it's not exactly the strong start I was hoping for. So, thank you all for coming tonight. Um, This is weird. Danny and Shannon look incredibly uncomfortable and awkward. Mom, you look miserable. Like This is the last thing you want to be doing. Dad, you're very red. Then you might just be sunburned, or you're maybe nervous, I don't know. I have no idea. I decide to take everyone's temperature to see how they feel the last few years have gone. What are people's takes on, like, what things are like versus what they would like them to be?
5: I wish I had more open communication in general with everyone. I know I'm really bad about it. We talked about that a lot earlier. But, like, my communication with all of you suck. Straight up, it's pretty awful. I'm not open. I hide a lot. So, definitely need to get better on that.
2: My dad jumps in. To him, it's mostly about the amount of time we spend together.
6: I don't see Shannon as much as I'd like to. And then you, you know, we talked about you, you know, running away <laughs> to New York.
4: I just don't want things to feel awkward in the future. What do you mean? Like I don't want it to be like like, oh, the five of us are here in one place and it's awkward. I just don't want it to feel like it's wrong for mom and dad to be in the same place at the same time. I feel like the situation has made it to where it's like they shouldn't be there together.
2: My mom is sitting to my right with her arms crossed and lips pursed. She came here straight from work at the hospital, so she's in scrubs. She has the look of someone getting bad news at a staff meeting. It's very tense.
4: I don't understand why it's a problem, and I don't want it to be a problem. I don't want it to be like, oh, it's my wedding, and I have to sit them on... Different pews because... We sat
6: in the same general area at Christina's wedding. I don't think you have to... We were in the same pew. Yeah. Well, you were in front of us,
2: but... They're talking about my cousin's wedding a couple years ago. My dad is convinced he was in a pew behind my mom. My mom disagrees.
6: Well, you were all in one pew. All right, I thought you guys were in front of me.
2: This is how it always goes with my family. Small arguments that are pretty clearly about something bigger something we won't address. It's also the first time my mom has spoken up. And looking around, it's clear everyone is wondering what she is thinking. So I take the opportunity to engage with her directly. Do you have any questions about, like, what it should look like going forward? Or any thoughts about what it should look like going forward?
7: I don't think you can define what it's supposed to look like. I think every situation is different. Every person's situation is different. And you just kind of have to grow into what's Going to w- what our situation is supposed to lo- is going to look like? Not supposed to look like. There's no supposed to be. You
2: know. Yeah. What would you like it to look like? <sighs> and then we sit in silence. My mom's face tightens. She looks at the ground, and she whispers, "I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to answer." I thought this whole thing might help my family, but it now feels more like I'm torturing them. I'm worried this was a bad idea, and I might actually be making things worse. And so I decide to wrap up, to try and talk myself out of the hole I realize I've dug. Part of the reason I got interested in this at all is I've been working on this other story, and it's got me thinking a lot about like, what is family? And like, what is the idea of a family? And is it like a static thing? And is it supposed to change over time? Or can't and then my mom cuts me off. And can be- Cuts right to the heart of the matter, just names the elephant in the room. Obviously, like, we're all adults now. We're all very different than we were.
7: I think we need to be more accepting of new people. and Yeah. Because that has not happened. And that has caused a lot of—that's what has caused the tension, 100%.
2: What she's talking about here is her new partner. They've been together for a few years, they live together now, and she is really happy but some of our relationships with him had not always been smooth. He had a hard time with my dad still being somewhat in the picture initially, and that did not always sit well with me and my brother. In fact, I didn't even consider inviting him tonight, which, I don't know, is telling.
5: To bounce off that, I have a frustration. It, gives, it started the whole favorites thing.
2: Danny says that one of his frustrations has not been with my mom's partner, that my mom seems to have grown even closer with her partner's daughter. Closer than she is with Danny. He now feels like a middle child to an entirely new family. And
5: you have a better relationship with her than with me. And I feel like she's been on more vacations with you. We don't even get invited on vacations that you go on.
7: I can't afford to take you on vacation.
5: Well, I don't expect you to take me. It's Believe me, if I could, I would absolutely... Well, no, but it's not even getting the invitation.
7: Very fair. And I apologize.
2: And then I see it start to happen. Actual communication between two members of my family that almost never talk.
5: Yeah, there's a very good chance that you might have thought at the time that I couldn't even been able to go. But it's the fact of there not being an invitation to go. Sucks.
2: It's very fair. And I, I mean, I would assume that's not malicious. That's just, like, an oversight. So not. (laughs) Yeah. Not at all. It's a small thing, but it's real. And somehow, this openness between my brother and my mom, my brother, who has spent most of his life explicitly not talking about his feelings, and my mom, who feels the most hurt by our choices in recent years, it breaks open the seal. And all of a sudden, for the first time, we are all talking, uncomfortably, yes but not defensively. This all started with saying that you wish that we were more accepting of new people.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: When you're not accepting, and you're not willing to give him a chance, it turns into, well, then why would he want to? Well, well. And then it just all ends up snowballing and becoming, there's nothing there.
2: What would that look like for you? Like what would trying to be more accepting? Do you have like things that like we could do or that you've thought about that would be nice? No. I think you guys
6: have to decide that on your own. As I've learned a lot is, you guys shouldn't have to be taught or told how to do that.
2: My dad calls me out, sees me doing the thing he did for years, asking for instructions as opposed to taking initiative, just trying harder. I'm a little embarrassed, but I have to think that, right now, he's trying to keep my relationship with my mom from following the same path his did.
6: You should, you know, you guys know how to treat people. You you were taught how to treat people and be kind to people. You don't need a list. And I'm as guilty as anybody else. I mean...
7: A little bit more so. Because you foster it in them.
2: You foster it in them, she says. My dad looks surprised. It's the harshest, most direct confrontation I've seen between my parents in years. The kind of thing that, when they were together, could have escalated into a shouting match or something being thrown across the room. We all turn to see how my dad will respond.
6: I apologize for that. I guess, you know, for me, it felt like, you know, basically three years ago, the rules for me changed. It was hard for me to deal with that and understand that, because it was never really, we never really talked about that. I felt guilty, like, what did I do wrong? Whatever, I'm not, you know, I know you know, my failures are, and I apologize. And I hope you all three can get past what you think, how you think I feel
2: or thing, and just be yourselves. It's tense, but it feels like this was productive. And so I try to sum things up. Get out while we're ahead. I feel like part of this was um, kicked off by my instinct to, like, try to fix things, which I think I do a lot. I don't know. And then... Can I say one thing? My dad interrupts. Katie, I'm sorry.
6: And I I mean that.
2: I do wish the
6: best for you. And I always have. And I'm sorry if my behavior or attitude has, you know, brushed off on the three of them to make them not be, you know, the good quality people that they are. So
2: that's it. Thank you. There's a tenderness in this interaction that I can't remember seeing as a kid. I genuinely think my dad is trying to atone for decades of falling short. And my mom, she did not need to accept this apology. But it feels like she's been waiting for someone to acknowledge what she has felt for so long. She seems almost relieved to be able to say thank you. It's strange to say about your parents, but it just feels really grown up. That spirit of openness follows my family for the rest of the night. After we wrap, my brother asks my mom about getting together soon, something they hadn't done in a very long time. He also tells my sister about the child he put up for adoption years ago. She's shocked, I ask all sorts of questions, and then, in return, she shares her own secret with Danny. She comes out, tells him she's gay. It's a remarkable thing, and I can't help but go to bed that night relieved and grateful. This talk was not a cure-all, but I can tell you now, from the future, that things did get better between all of us. Not perfect, but softer, easier. We're a work in progress, but trending positive. After the break, there is just one last thing left to do. Get rid of Matthew McGill's box. Finally, I get my closet back in just a minute.
1: You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+.
2: In summer of 2019, I decided to get rid of Matthew McGill's box. I had looked at all the documents and photos inside. I had called just about every person I wanted to call. The box had followed me between jobs, been stowed away on different shelves and different closets for years. To be honest, it was starting to feel like a poltergeist. I wanted to get rid of it. But where to take it. Matthew's oldest brother had died. I'd only gotten a hold of his sister once, who was literally on horseback when she answered the phone, and she never called me again. And so the one person it made sense to give it to was his youngest brother, Richard. I flew to San Francisco with the box. Along the way, I stopped in Vegas for a friend's 30th birthday and the final week of Celine Dion's 15-year residency on the Strip. On my way up the elevator at the flamingo, a group of middle-aged tourists got on, looked at the box, and asked, You got a dead body in there? Everyone laughed. And then I said, kinda. And everyone stopped laughing.
0: I mean, just all of us is to say, where did this happen? And how did how did this come across and all that sort of stuff?
2: Yeah. Um, that's a totally good question. Um, if it's all right, could you just ask me that on a mic?
0: <laughs> so where did all this begin? How did you come
2: across this? Richard Watkins lives in an apartment building with his wife and two golden retrievers. It's in an old ritzy part of San Francisco. When I got there, his daughter and son, both in their 20s, were also visiting. Richard's daughter was a star college athlete and his son works for a tech company. It was the week of the NBA Finals, and they were over to watch the Golden State Warriors play for their third straight championship. We sit down at the big dining room table, and I walk the family through all the stuff I had learned about Matthew over the years, a lot of which Richard's kids have never heard. Had been told that Matthew had been an actor in New York, and that he had been a model, um, that he had uh, a sister who had won a gold medal in the Olympics, and he had a father who was a famous pilot who had been hijacked and taken to Cuba. And stories about, I think maybe it's an uncle of yours through marriage, who was an alligator wrestler in Florida. Like the first- Ross Allen. Ross Allen, yeah. Yeah. And his first wife is an actress on the show Transparent now, Mm -hmm. and-
0: Jenny O'Hara. Jenny, yeah.
2: And I didn't know that, that, Richard's daughter says. (laughs) (laughs) I tell them about the folks who cared for him at the end of his life. In the town where he died. Woodbine, Georgia, have any of you been, or do you know anything about this place? Mm-hmm. It's so tiny, that there's like one street.
0: <laughs> I have Google Earthed and done the street view. Yeah. In front of his place, saw him standing behind like a fruit stand or a vegetable stand. You know, of course they blur out the faces, but he had a straw hat on, and it certainly looked like him, so I could tell, it's like, I think that this is the right spot. So I saw the house.
2: I turned to Richard's kids. How much do you all know about any of this?
8: Not a lot. (laughs) Not much, I mean, when was the, when we, I remember the photo of Granddaddy Gus's place and door being there. Uh Uh-huh. And fishing fishing with him. And so like, what, at what point in your your relationship with him, like, had he he already had kids then? And, And so, all right, so. So he would do this round trip
0: he would come around, and uh, things would happen, and things would disappear. Literally, things around the house or whatever. Uh, maybe they're in the box now. <laughs> <laughs> um,
7: <but laughs>
0: those candlesticks. <laughs> those
2: Do you have qu- more questions, or should we just, like, do you want to dig in? Yeah. Okay. It's very well taped, courtesy of the TSA. <laughs> I cut the packing tape from the box and crack it open. Just like Ed Libby did for me years ago. Somehow it still smells exactly the same. Exactly well, what it is. It's
0: got that smell.
2: It's got. It it's has got that
0: old, old paper smell. Yeah, I've never seen any of that.
2: We pick through the items and look at the photos. There's Richard and his siblings when they're little. It's hilarious. And photos of Matthew when he was trying to model. Look at this. This looks like something out of an <laughs> old James Bond.
0: Like?
5: Yeah. That's, that's him. him. Yeah. That's definitely him. It's <laughs> yeah. a good thing we're
2: here. <laughs> wow, <laughs> no, that's crazy. These are a bunch of the newspaper clippings he kept, particularly around the, um, the hijacking. The yeah.
0: So there we go. So this is in the 70- yeah, mid-70s. 74. Yeah, that makes sense.
2: You were yeah. diligent. Right. You were just yeah. going. Thank you, Richard. Walking through the various beats of Matthew's life is fun. It feels like show and tell. And then I show them the folder with all the paperwork from the car thefts. Oh my God. So it's like the actual um, warrant.
5: Search warrant. Oh shit.
2: (laughs) And the funny thing happens around this point. Richard's son gets more curious and starts to ask more questions about his estranged uncle. And Richard takes over, fills in the blanks. And he would go off these episodic journeys riding
0: a motorcycle up through through the west and up the, up the coast or down from Washington down to California. He did that? And yeah. Well, he had such demons. I mean, he truly, I believe, had demons. Every time he comes, he's doing something really interesting, an endeavor that is brilliant and creative. You want him to succeed, and he, he'd blow it. I feel like I should be going remorseful, perhaps, that I wasn't there to help him. And at some point in time, uh, way long ago, we got so separated from each other that I, I had made a choice and we had made a choice that it would just, we couldn't do it anymore because we kept on getting stabbed and it was just too difficult. And th- he would do things that were harmful to people.
2: To family.
8: Why do you think that he kept the letters that your dad was writing to his dad? And
2: this is Richard's son again.
8: He's like, all right, I want to, I want my stuff to live in, a, in this box as I'm dying, like, so that something stays around and that people remember me. And other than like the, the legal stuff, it looks like all right, he's a lot of family stuff was still important mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. Yeah. Photos of his kids, <laughs> pho- photos of you. That's kind of interesting, Just given like how he he ran away, changed his name, dis- you know, disassociated from the family. Y- you but, wouldn't expect but, to have that. But this is all like this is the last things that reflect his life, are the family like the Watkins family stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Which would indicate a kind of a sad tale. Totally, mm-hmm. right. He did care about family, but he couldn't. Mm-hmm. That's the sad part. By the time things got to where they they were, he just uh, was so far
8: removed from any relationships. I'm so close with my brother, and, and like you don't even talk to your brother. And I was like, what, like what, like what? How does that work? He must have done. Some, all this bad shit that where you literally have no emotion about it anymore. It's just like it's a different person, it's a stranger. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I wish I did care, absolutely. But it, the, the walls went up a long time ago.
2: We turn back to the box for a few more minutes. I pull out some of the old daguerreotypes of the family from nearly a hundred years ago.
3: Oh, that's
5: <laughs> that is, creepy. So <laughs> that's <is> so creepy. <laughs> looks like a, look at those kind of eyes.
2: Doll. And then, more family shows up to watch the Warriors game. Uh, hi, I'm Eric. <laughs> I'm a reporter, nice to meet you, Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> you hi. Sorry. Richard offers me chili and beer, but for some reason, after years of digging into his family's history, the chilly is the point where I start to feel a little invasive. So I turn off my mic and put my gear away. As I turn to head for the door, I glance into the living room where Richard's kids and their partners are on the couch. It feels like a scene out of a 90s family sitcom. It's so the opposite of the story I had heard about Dora's family over the years. Of the fights, the infidelity, the anger, the hurt. I leave the apartment and walk towards the elevator. About a year later, I'll write to Richard to start the fact-checking process for this show. I'll tell him I'm reaching out to Matthew's daughters one more time for due diligence, but don't expect they'll talk with me. By his own initiative, and to my surprise, Richard will reach out to one of them on his own. She's older now, with a family. He'll write her a very nice email saying he doesn't expect her to remember him. It's been decades since they'd seen each other last, when she was just a child. But if she's ever interested in being in touch... Maybe it would help them both close an ugly chapter in their lives. He'll include pictures of his family and their dogs. She'll respond that night, excited to have heard from him and to see all the cousins she's never met. She'd love to be in touch, she'll say, and learn how Richard made it out of the Watkins home in one piece. I get to the elevator and press the down button. Before the door opens, Richard rushes out into the hall to stop me. I worry I've forgotten something, but he actually just wants to tell me one more thing. That's what this is really about, he says, pointing to his front door. That and there. When one of my sons lost his best friend in college, two of the other kids hopped on a plane to go and to be with him that night. That's what family is. You drop everything and go. It's the opposite of what I had. That must be really special for you then, I say, seeing that in there. Yes, Richard says. We all choose our own path. I've thought a lot about that moment with Richard. Him saying, this is what family is. You drop everything and go. Family can be a million different things. There's no supposed to. But it occurs to me that what Richard is describing is exactly what happened with my own family. I needed help. I needed to understand what had gone wrong with us I needed to ask questions about this period where I had felt lonely and estranged from them. And my family dropped everything to come into a wildly uncomfortable situation and help me do that. I feel so lucky, even still. Five years ago, I came into a box full of mystery and intrigue, with a very handsome man at the center of it all. And I think in that man, I saw someone who had lost everyone he could possibly consider family, And it honestly didn't feel so far away. When I first got his box, I thought I was following a trail of breadcrumbs to understand how Matthew McGill got so lost in the woods. But now I think I was actually just following the trail that would lead me out. Richard shakes my hand. I get on the elevator and I leave. Away from Matthew McGill was created by me, Eric Menel, with Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Elliot Adler and me, edited by Joel Lovell and Hilary Frank, with editing help from Lisa Pollock. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weissbergman and Max Linsky. Fact-checking and research by Sarah Ivory, mixing by Hannes Brown, Production Management by Grace Chen, Social by Hadeem Zhang, Marketing and Visuals by Kirk Courtney and Josephina Francis at Cadence13. Unlicensed podcast therapist, Rachel Ward. Early reporting for this project was supported by Gimlet Media. Original scoring by Blank Forms and S. Carey. Our credit song, On the Cusp, is by the band Any Kind. I I so many people have helped me with this project over the years. A huge debt of gratitude to Kelly Libby, Aaron Kelly, Caitlin Jamo, Quinn Haraday, Sylvie Douglas, Tyler Gilmore, Andrew Solomon, Dan McAdams, Richard Watkins, Thorne Watkins, Jenny O'Hara, Cindy Day, Ed Libby, Pat Walters, Sarah Saracen, Eric Eddings, Ian Chilog, James Spring, Kofen Mputubwele, Liz Watson, Sam Lee, the guy who sold Jenny the monkey, Janelle Pfeiffer, Sophie Bridges, Yinka Rickford-Engwin, Brianna Garrett, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Eleanor Kagan, Henry Malofsky, Jonathan Menhevar, JD Crowley, my best friend POTUS, Jenny Crick, Erica Voll, and Andrea Bracky. And, of course, to my entire family, mom, dad, Danny, and Shannon. I cannot think of a better group of people to be stumbling over this dumb rock with.